Listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 65, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. And uh, happy summer to all of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's been really hot and humid here in the Midwest. Uh, But at the same time, my flower garden is going bananas, and uh, that's the silver lining for me. So uh, there was a short teaser leading into the show, um, which is a, a snippet of a toll song called Black Mamba, which is in honor of our guest, and all of that will be made clear in the interview. That's why they call it a teaser. Um, it's good to talk with you all again after yet another short absence. Uh, I just got back from Peru earlier this week, spent a couple weeks down there, and uh, these days it takes me a couple days to recuperate from long aeroplane rides, especially those where I have to stay up for a couple of days, uh, maybe with uh, just a really uncomfortable nap on the plane. Uh, but I'm coming around finally, and my laundry from the trip is nearly done too. I mean, that's another whole issue in itself, you know, the Peruvian Rainforest is a great testing arena for clothing, and it doesn't take long to figure out what works and what holds up to the damp and the heat and the mud and the bugs and so forth. Uh, now, before we get to this week's guest, I want to thank all of the show's patrons. So, you know, it takes a lot of time and treasure to maintain even a little entertainment channel like this one. And I'm very appreciative of the folks who helped to keep so much Pingle rolling forward. And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, it's easy to do. And by a few bucks, I I mean just that. You can support the show for as little as $3 a month. So now that's less than a Vente Mocha Latte decaf with goat's milk and a little foam heart on top. So how about that? So you can buy me a cup of coffee or you can help support the show for about the same price. And you can do that via Patreon. You just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And, uh, of course, now I want another cup of coffee. Okay, one more thing I want to mention before we get into the episode. My buddy Brian Hughes and I were recent guests on the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast, which is hosted by my longtime friend Michael Cravens. And, of course, Brian has been on my show a number of times, and I did an episode with Michael way back in season one. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Michael had us on to discuss field herping. 
uh, as a recreational activity and as a recreational activity in Arizona. And that's episode 12 in that series. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, and thanks, Michael, for inviting me to participate. So if you're living out there and you're partaking of the tremendous natural wonderland that is Arizona, uh, well, you should be listening to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. So Michael does a great job with the show and it's off to a great start. So be sure to check it out. Alrighty then. My guest this week is Dr. Andrew Durso. He is an assistant professor of wildlife biology at Florida Gulf Coast University. And it's been my privilege to know him for more than a decade. And we've worked on a few small projects together, and I hope that continues. Now, Andrew describes himself as an ecologist, but as you'll hear from our conversation, uh, he's involved with a lot of other projects outside the focus of ecology. So I will just call him a scientist with a capital S. So let's get to it. Oh, I almost forgot to mention, on top of everything else, Andrew is the creator and author of Life is Short, But Snakes Are Long, which is a series of blog posts that dive really deep into a number of snake-related topics, and I mean deep. Uh, and of course, that's in our discussion as well. And uh, so be sure to check out the show notes for links to this blog and to a list of the many papers that Andrew has authored and co-authored over the years. Okay, thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. On this episode, it's my privilege to talk to Dr. Andrew Durso. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, see you again. We're talking. We got a little video going as we're talking. It's good to see you again and uh, talk with you. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to kind of spit out some uh, particulars about you. You are a. Uh, you're at the. Uh, Florida Gulf Coast University in the Department of Biological Sciences. That's right. Uh, and uh, also have a collaborative relationship with the uh, Institute of Global Health uh, at the University of Geneva, which is over in Switzerland. Correct. And uh, you've done uh, any number of cool things, and that's what we're here to talk to you about. And we know each other uh, from some projects that we worked on together uh, over the years. So. But let's start uh, uh, with, um, you're currently in Florida, but uh, tell us where you're from originally and uh, give, give us some of your, a little more on your uh, academic background and so forth. Sure. So uh, I was born in New York, uh, moved to North Carolina when I was a kid and grew up, spent my formative years there in Raleigh, uh, started volunteering at a natural history museum, the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences when I was in middle school and discovered that I loved herps through some of the herpetologists there for earliest field experiences and exposure to public outreach and that kind of thing. Oh, let me think. I just had a flashback because uh, I, I remember staying at your house, your mom's house. Oh, yeah. Uh, and because I, I did an, a herp mapper event, I think at that at that same place, it, right? It was, yeah. I forget what year that was, but they have an annual reptile and amphibian day. Uh, which the last couple of years it's been virtual, but typically that's an event with like five to, you know, 6,000 people would come. They have all kinds of tables. And yeah, I remember you drove out there. I think they covered some costs and my mom put you up. And then we, did, did they organize a uh, North Carolina Herp Society meetup or dinner or something for you as well? Oh, that sounds familiar. I, um, I think, yeah, I think that was the night before. Okay. 
Um, yeah, but it was that place, uh, in case anybody wonders it, it's in Raleigh and it is cool. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, my little table in the hall of sciences or whatever is right underneath this gigantic whale skeleton, uh, which was pretty awesome. I've never been under a whale skeleton before. <laughs> yeah, those are great events. And, and I think, you know, hopefully they can go back to being in person soon. So I, I started volunteering at those, you know, when I was about 12 or 13 years old and learned a lot about, you know, the, the fine art of talking to people about herps and about snakes in particular, you know, what do I do when I see a snake in my yard and how do I tell them apart? Um, And that was also where I got my first exposure to the idea that you could have a career in herpetology and doing research in the, into the biology of these organisms in the wild. Yeah. These things, they're just, they're not just, I mean, they're fun. It's fun to bring the kitties to, but you know, you get people like you out of them. Yeah. uh, You know, you're like the poster child for this. It's, it's a great, these are great events to sort of stimulate uh, young minds. Yeah, that that museum was totally transformative for me because I think a lot of kids are interested in animals when they're in elementary school. And then in middle and high school, for whatever reason, it's not cool anymore. You know, a lot of people probably <laughs> fall out of it at that age and maybe never get back into it. So because these programs were targeted at middle and high schoolers, I got to spend a lot of time around other people my age that shared my interests. Most of us went to different schools, so we probably never would have met each other otherwise. And we even uh-huh. got to travel internationally as part of that program. I went to uh, Trinidad and Tobago with a group of other you know, middle and high school students and leaders from the museum when I was about 14 years old and got to catch you uh-huh. know, parrot snakes and vine snakes and uh, Cook's tree boas and that kind of thing, which was so completely just lived a, a dream at a young age and gave me the yeah. opportunity to realize that I could continue to do that kind of thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, kind of blown you, blew your mind a little bit, I'm sure, at that age. It, it did. I mean, uh, it, I, I often reflect on how lucky I was to have had those kinds of opportunities from such an early age. And uh, it, it certainly helped make connections too in terms of deciding where I was going to go to school. You know, I went to the University of Georgia, majored in ecology. That was a connection that I, I made at least partly through some of the folks there at the museum. I considered a bunch of different places, but UGA had a strong history of herpetological research, particularly through um, the Savannah River Ecology Lab and the the herp lab that Whit Gibbons had run there since, you know, the late 60s. And I was really fortunate when I was an undergraduate student to be um, a summer student of Wits out at the lab for a couple of months in the summer of 2006. Yeah, that was shortly before he retired, but real privilege to just work in an area that had such long-term data on amphibians and reptiles. I think they have, you know, one of their accolades is they've they've marked and released over a million individual herps over the whatever 50 plus year period. <laughs> that's that's nuts. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, you can't even imagine. I'm sure they never saw most of them again, but uh, it was, I don't know if it was routine, but it was certainly not unheard of that a graduate student in that lab would, you know, capture a snapping turtle that had been first marked before that person had been born. You know, (laughs) Uh, so incredible uh, exposure there. And so that that experience kind of formed. So that was a 
research experience for undergraduates through the National Science Foundation. And that kind of formed my first exposure to actually doing research, field research. Um, got a chance, you know, later on to publish a couple of papers on that data set. And I'm still collaborating with uh, my good friend and colleague, J.D. Wilson, who was a PhD student there at the time and is now a professor at the University of Arkansas on various aspects of snake biology. That got me connected to my graduate advisor, uh, Steve Mullen, then at Eastern Illinois University, which is probably, I think, Mm -hmm. the first time that you and I ever met in person. That's only about 45 minutes to the south of... uh, You're in Champaign, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So so I don't know. I don't remember the first time we encountered each other in, in person. I think I invited you to Joined my dad and I at a Jethro Tull concert in Chicago. I remember. Point. Yeah, we've pretty... we've traded we've traded off some uh, some toll stuff. So since we're a big, you your dad and I and uh, and you are a um, big Tull fan. Oh yeah, time. yeah. He's been a, a heavy Tull fan since he was in high school. I think his older brother took him to see the Thick as a Brick tour at Madison Square Gardens in 1972. Oh Oh my God. Yeah. And he's told me he was hooked ever since. So, wow. I didn't, I didn't, my first show was in 75, I think, or oh, 76. Nice. Either, yeah. 75. So, the the one right before the Songs from the Wood album and oh, tour. Yeah. So, is that, that Minstrel in the Gallery uh, or maybe Too, too, old, too to old to Rock and Roll? And roll. Yeah, yeah. Too Old yeah. to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die. I mean, so, he was singing yeah. that in 1976, and yet, you know, they <laughs> they just Tull just put out a new album, album the uh, the Zealot yes. Gene. Have you heard it? I I haven't yet. I've been too busy. And I've been traveling, but I did go see Martin Barr, excellent in Indianapolis uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, my wife went over with me, and uh, he's still kicking ass. Oh yeah, uh, he rocks mid 70s, and he he can play that guitar. I know we're fanboying here, but this is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, we got to see Martin a couple of times when we were living in Germany, and I've seen him in the U.S. with my dad as well. Um, awesome reimaginings of, of tall songs. And in fact, one of the blog posts that I always wanted to do was um, songs about snakes. And there ah. there are a couple of Jethro Tull songs that at least allude to snakes. There's the song Black Mamba from jtull.com, yes. and then there's also uh-huh. the Rattlesnake Trail from... Rattlesnake um, Trail. Uh, what is that from... Uh, not from catfish rising yeah yeah um uh, but that that one may be a little more uh <clears throat> what would freud say about the rattlesnake yeah yeah a lot to say about that one they're deep cuts as well so i don't i don't know yeah. um but but that's a fun fun connection it, so let's see to return to to what you're asking um so yeah two years a master's degree at eastern illinois university with steve mullen um working on western hognose snakes in the northwestern corner of illinois and yes. we actually that may be where where we met for the first time was up there uh, in the in the uh, sand prairies that sounds somewhere up there that sounds about right i mean those are yeah. those are top illinois herping destinations and i had the privilege to spend two entire summers out there every single day you know looking for snakes and catching western hogs and fox snakes and blue racers and seeing you know yeah. six-lined race runners and ornate box turtles every single day blanding's turtles Ooh. nesting on the prairies um just wonderful wonderful ecosystems that unfortunately there's far too few of them remaining yeah i i love going up there there are some great little you know, like you stay in a, i wouldn't call it an ecosystem it's <laughs> little habitats remnants, but yeah remnants but um you can have a good time up there and um I often think about uh, 
like in June, I'm all thinking, hmm, I bet the box turtles are moving around up there now. Oh, yeah. You know, so um, it, it kind of places like that stick in your mind, I'm sure. They do. And I'd love to return. You know, I have a ton of questions about the ecology of all those herps in those places. And my, unfortunately, my my seasonal allergies were so bad in those sand oh. prairies that it was really a struggle to uh, accomplish some of that field work. So I wonder... I don't know if they would be any better if I would go back now. Probably worse. Mm. Um, mm, hard to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you regard yourself as an ecologist. I do. You know, my, my bachelor's degree is in ecology. Um, the Odom School of Ecology at UGA is the the nation's, at the time it was the only standalone school of ecology in the world. And so that's that's my training. You know, on a job application, I always say that I'm a population and community ecologist because it's a little bit passe in the academic world to self-identify as a herpetologist or as anything to do with a specific taxonomic group. It's kind of ridiculous, right. but, you know, there's there's fads in science just like in anything else. And I'm, yeah. I'm usually pretty transparent with my students and, you know, my colleagues that I I got into it because of my passion about the organisms and that continues to guide my, my work. But I recognize that if you want to be competitive, you know, you have to, you have to be pretty diverse. Yes. And I've tried to, yes. you know, using snakes and, and herps as a central theme, I've dabbled in everything from, you know, uh, demography to diet, behavior, physiological adaptations about uh, the way that the body works. Then for my postdoc, the snake bite and global health angle with citizen science and artificial intelligence. So I've tried to bring in, you know, various different aspects, all of which I find really interesting. Um, and all which can be used uh, as part of a uh, ecology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ecology yeah. is the study of sort of everything, right? How does it all fit together? The living things, yeah. the non-living things. I think a lot of herpetologists are probably guilty of focusing a little too heavily on just the herps. You know, we don't think as much about their interactions with uh, their prey and their predators and their parasites and uh, things of that nature. So try, yeah. try to keep it diverse. Okay. Uh, and so you, uh, you got your master's and then you, where would you go from there? Yeah. So then I went into a PhD program at Utah State University. Um, yep. A beautiful place to live. Not a ton of herps, you know, I, I detected at that time in my life, a steady northward trend that I wasn't too thrilled with, you know, Georgia <laughs> to, to Illinois. And it was really a first in Illinois when I encountered winters that were so harsh that I couldn't do any herping at all for really three months out of the year and kind of rediscovered a childhood love of birds and bird watching at that time, which I've maintained to this day. Um, you were forced into it. You had nothing else to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I like to be outside and there were no herps active in, you know, December, January and February. And then in Utah, it, it went from three months to five or six. Um, of course, northern Utah has some super cool herps like rubber boas that are that are active the other half of the year. Uh, and my field work was in southwestern Utah in the Mojave Desert. So I got a chance to see, yeah. you know, sidewinders and heel monsters and stuff like that whenever we went down there. But that was six hours away. Um, learned a ton about all kinds of different aspects, including computer programming. You know, that's something that I never really thought I was capable of, but wow, started cool. started doing as a PhD student and really, I think, made me a more efficient 
researcher and a better field biologist because when I'm in the field now, I can think about how am I collecting these data in a way that is going to cause the fewest problems later when I want to manipulate, analyze, or display them. Um, so we're talking about Python and R? Yeah, I started in Python, which, uh, funny story, actually, the first day of programming for biologists class, the instructor walked us through, you know, installing Python. And then they said, okay, well, to open it, you know, just search Python on your machine and it should be the only thing that comes up. And that was true for pretty much all of the other <laughs> students in the class. Of course, I had, you know, dozens of papers about, you know, Python brooding and Python ecology. And so I had to sift through those <laughs> to find uh, Python, the programming language, which I learned that day is not named for the snakes, but for Monty Python, the British humor troupe. Yes. Uh, a, a side note, I was just in a, I was in a Barnes and Noble the other day and I, I always go over to the, you know, like the ant, the science section and the animal section and, sure. and, and I go over to look at all the bird books and I, I, you know, I get mad because every, every, there's always like three or four foot on the shelf of new bird books. There's never any new herb books. Yeah, yeah. But then I went around the other side and they had all the programming books over there and there were more books with the term Python. <laughs> on them <laughs> associated with the with the language and there were no books associated with the real python yeah yeah that's that's <laughs> bad. just kind of made kind of made me sad it's like man this is this this is what where we're at now sure so. sure yeah in fact when we were doing some of the snake id stuff you know we were trying to web scrape the web for images of different species and we came up with these lists of terms that we wanted to use you know viper cobra coral snake you know in different languages and and we at first we included both python and anaconda which is the name of one of the python like interface things uh tools but we got so many hits for the programming languages that we ended up having to exclude those terms because they uh. weren't giving us what we needed and th there are other examples probably more lewd examples of things that people on the yeah. internet use the word snake to refer to that we tried to tried our best to filter out but still oh you know we're all trying to filter that stuff yeah out. yeah that was <laughs> that was a little a little a hazard of that kind of work um wow. scraping twitter for for images of snakes so uh, i mean when you ever think you'd use a sentence with the phrase scraping Twitter for snakes. <laughs> no, no, it sounds, <laughs> sounds absurd. Certainly would have many years ago. Um, oh. Okay. So from your, from your uh, doctorate to you, uh, where did you go from there? Yeah. So um, during that time I met uh, my wife or the woman who would become my wife. She was a master's student there in, in uh, soil science and she got the opportunity to do her PhD at one of the Max Planck institutes in Germany. And what's her name again? I forget. Her name is Kendall Morris. Uh, she's currently a postdoc at a national lab in Maryland, uh, working okay. on soil biogeochemistry and the impact of coastal flooding on carbon cycling and in forest ecosystems. She's actually taught me a ton about um, soil and stable isotopes and, and these different tools that like geochemists use that I think also have good potential to help us understand the ecology of animals. Um, and so oh, I've, cool. she trained me how to run a couple of instruments and I learned about, you know, some of the major tools that I used for my PhD, which was looking at the um, physiological ecology of side blotch lizards are things that I learned through association with her and her lab. Um, so we've, we've published wow. a couple of small things together on, you know, 
natural history observations that we've made and we've talked about ways that we could collaborate more intensely in the future to look at, you know, soil dwelling herps and bur burrowing animals. Um, that that is romance right there. It, it is. You. you know, we we try to um, I, I kid you not either. This is this is really cool. <laughs> yeah, well it, it's really um a privilege to be married to her for a whole variety of reasons. Her her scientific <laughs> accomplishments are are certainly among them. Uh, and I was really grateful for the opportunity to move to Germany and to experience what it was like to live in a different country and another culture where I didn't speak the language was something I never considered doing before. And uh, I was a little bit reluctant to move there at first. But when during the four years that we lived there, I absolutely loved every bit of it. You know, we lived in a small town called Jena, which is in the former eastern part of Germany. It's been a science and technology center since at least the 1500s. You know, some of one of the oldest universities in, in Germany is Good there. God. Yeah, I mean, a university where she got her degree is older than this country by a couple of centuries, which is crazy. <sighs> Um, we, we used to joke, you know, there's a whole there's a whole street where they have statues of various famous people who got degrees from it's called Friedrich Schiller University. So got degrees from this university. We used to joke that, you know, we wondered how long after you graduated did it take for them to erect your statue? <laughs> <laughs> so may, maybe in a few years we'll wow. go back and her statue will be there, but probably not. Well, hopefully, hopefully it won't take half a millennium or something. I know. Crazy I know. Like <laughs> um, yeah. So while I was there, you know, I worked um, for about a year and a half as a uh, scientific editor for the Max Planck Institute. Um, I was hoping to to teach a little bit, but uh, learned pretty quickly that all of the, even the graduate level teaching uh, was in German, which was not something that I was equipped to do when we first moved there. Um, and so I really enjoyed the opportunity to hone some of my editing skills and, you know, attended a couple of conferences, really did a lot of field herping in Europe and got to know a ton of people over there. So traveled to cool. Greece and Spain and Sweden and uh, Morocco, whole variety nice. of top, top destinations. You mentioned you're going to Greece uh, next week. Is this your first time yeah. there? Yes. I'm very excited. Yeah. It's, it's a great place. We went in the fall and it was a little bit too dry to see some of the really special stuff like Sheltapusic and some of the, the rare snakes like the sand boa, but we did have uh, really good luck with lizards when we went there, got to see like a bunch of geckos and some of the legless skinks and stuff. Okay. So I, I can send you a couple of spots maybe afterwards if you if you don't have the trip already Ooh. planned down to a down to the second. Uh, I I think it's kind of already itinerary i itinerized um what's the word we already have a, a big itinerary okay I think, so. but i'll say thank you anyway sure sure <laughs> yeah wonderful wonderful country um and it was around that time you know i i was ramping up my involvement in these uh facebook snake identification group where i've been an admin for a long time i don't even remember who added me as an admin but um it's been Frankly, it's been ages since I've even identified a snake on there because there's such a large team of people that know what they're doing that get to it immediately. Um, I, I, I think I, I hope I lend them some legitimacy, but I haven't probably <laughs> pulled my weight as much as I should. Um, but it was during that time that uh, a graduate student at the University of Geneva sent a message to all of the admins on that group saying that 
you know, they were thinking about starting a project on snake bite and snake identification. And did we have any, any insight? Um, would we be willing to talk to them? So I said, yeah, sure. You know, I got a ton of time on my hands right now. I'm happy to talk. So we had kind of a, uh, a Skype, which is the video calling program that we used in those days before zoom became completely dominant yes. and, uh, ended up deciding that, um, they were going to be writing a grant. They asked me, you know, would I like to be involved with the grant? And if they got the grant that uh, they said, you know, maybe we'd like to consider hiring you as a postdoc to come to Geneva and do some of this work. That, that sounded great to me because I was looking for a postdoc to consider my, um, or to, to continue my academic career. Fortunately, the grant was funded. And so I moved there uh, part-time and kind of commuted back and forth Germany to Switzerland on the train, which was delightful. Um, wow. Yeah. I, the only thing I wasn't so keen on was that I had spent the last two years learning German. And then I moved to the only part of Spitzer Switzerland where they speak <laughs> French. <laughs> so uh, yeah, a little bit of shame to admit that I, I didn't learn much French when I was living in Geneva, I was much busier working and it's a much bigger and more international city. So I didn't really need to. Um, okay. But I, I was proud of the fact that I was able to attend a couple of HERP conferences in German uh, when I was living in Germany and understood, you know, a good fraction of what was going on. I think it, oh, cool. it helped that it Very was good. in my, uh, in my FAC, so in my, in my area. Um Wow. Yeah. So really, really cherished that opportunity. And then it was uh, it was when I was working for Geneva that I applied to, interviewed for, and was offered the job I have now, which is assistant professor of wildlife biology at Florida Gulf Coast University. So came here in okay. January 2020. Had no idea how much things were about to change. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's I've been here oh for boy. the past two and a half years. Cool. Well, I want to talk about what you're doing there, but I think first I'm going to back it up, back it up just a little bit to the uh, snake identification and snake bite stuff, because um, uh, you and I have a little bit of history with that as, uh, uh, as you were putting together this, I mean, it's a project and there's a big paper that came out of this. And I, I assume maybe some more papers will come out of this eventually, but uh it was a research, I mean, you can talk about this, of course, but to, looking at it, it's like, boy, this is a research project of a different sort uh, than than most people involved with snake ecology, you know, are, are get involved with. Yeah, very different experience for me than anything I had ever done before. You know, I, I'm primarily a field biologist, so I'm used to collecting my data points one at a time. And, you know, there, <laughs> there were a number of days at those Illinois sand prairies where I wouldn't collect any data points because you walk around for several hours and you don't find any hognosnakes. And so you haven't really added to your data set much that day. Um, whereas the, the snake bite work was really primarily motivated by um, this growing interest in snake bite as a global public health problem. You know, in, in the U.S., we don't really tend to think about this very much because it's not a big public health issue here. Certainly people are really afraid of snakes and snake bite, but we only have, you know, five or 6,000 snake bites a year and morbidity and mortality from those is, is basically nothing because we have such good access to healthcare, good infrastructure, anti-venom is there, you know, good roads and so on. Right. And it's uh, mostly when you do see reporting about it, it's the knucklehead factor. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty significant, you know, good, good numbers now, 20 to 30% of all U.S. snake bites are 
from intentional exposure. So that's, you know, those could be avoided. <sighs> um, but, yeah. but certainly in, in, you know, developing countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Asia, it's a significant concern because you have a lot of people who, you know, work outside in agriculture, they don't have shoes, they don't have protective gear, they're maybe walking at night barefoot with no light. And those are common situations where truly accidental snake bites can and do happen. And, and you know, we have okay data showing that there's probably something like 100,000 people dying from venomous snake bite worldwide every year and another 400,000 that have some kind of permanent disability, like they can't walk or they can't use their hand or something. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in trying to trying to reduce that. Uh, snakebite was not that recently anymore, but a couple of years ago, it was elevated to a neglected tropical disease status, which is something that the World Health Organization has a priority list of, you know, these diseases. It's kind of weird to think about snakebite as a disease because it's not transmissible, but it is a uh, disease by their definition anyway. Um, their their research priorities, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, uh, I, in fact, uh, you bring it up and I had just, I just talked to a couple uh, episodes ago to uh, a couple of uh, doctors, um, physicians, Dr. Nick Brandehoff and Dr. Jason Fold from the Asclepius Snakebite yes, Foundation. Yes, so, I noticed that uh, while I was. Yeah, it's all come up again. So we we talked about the very same things, the uh, neglected tropical disease element, and and so on and so forth. So sure, and I uh, I think there's an opportunity for herpetologists to contribute here because of course most medical doctors don't have any training in herpetology, and they may or may not know what to do when there's a snake bite. But in in some parts of the world, there's um not uh there's there's a choice of different antivenoms right in the u.s we're relatively lucky although actually our antivenom diversity is increasing we have uh crofab which was the go-to for for viper bites and then there was the coral snake antivenom for a long time those were the only two and now there's also anavip which has been fda approved to treat viper bites in the u.s and there's some evidence that maybe it does a better job for some species so it's getting more complicated but in in sub-saharan africa you might have three or four different antivenoms, you know, there's a, a viper one, there's an elapid one, there's a boomslang one, there's a special one for saw-scaled vipers because their venoms are very different from, say, puff adders. And so it is more helpful to know what has bitten you if you want to have the correct treatment. It's also really helpful to know if what has bitten you is a non-venomous snake and you don't need treatment. Um, well, that's, that's the sticky part, right? Because they, they don't have they may not have internet at all. They might have a phone. For sure. If they have a phone, it's probably an old phone with a, you know, you can take a picture of it maybe and show it to the doctor. But like you say, the doctor is not a herpetologist, so they don't know necessarily what the snake is. Yeah, the expertise is not in the areas where snake bite is a problem. And so we hoped to at least partly remedy that by developing better tools for doctors to use when they're treating snake bite cases. And, you know, these are emergencies where things move very fast. So I think. What I came to understand through this project is that there is also value in identifying snakes after the case has been has concluded, because if we get those epidemiological data on which snakes are biting people where, which we largely lack, even in developed countries, you know, in the U.S., half of all snake bites, the snake is never identified which is a bit crazy to think that we have yeah, such a crazy. huge gap in our data. You can tend to assume that it's mostly, you know, copperheads and, and rattlesnakes, 
but uh well you may never know if it's a cotton mouth or a water moccasin sure and and that it can make a difference <laughs> i i think um to an extent you know more so in other places but uh yeah we, so we did kind of a review on you know what percentage of snakes get id'd in various uh, snake bite cases around the world and it it's it's low you know 30 40 percent so even if you can't manage to id the snake in time it is still useful to to have that information get connected to the case later um and so we attack this in a couple of different ways. One is uh, crowdsourcing. So, you know, think the Facebook snake ID group or something like iNaturalist where you post an image and it has a location and then you get a response relatively quickly. Of course, not every member of the crowd is equal in their expertise. So sometimes things can get misidentified that way. Um, we, we did try to measure the speed and accuracy of identification, but it's really hard on a platform like Facebook because the you know, Facebook owns all those data and they're not very transparent right. about letting other people access or analyze them anymore. They used to be more open about it and now they're very closed, uh, which was disappointing. The other angle is the computer vision. So artificial intelligence, right? Training uh, algorithms to ID stuff from pictures. And there's a lot of apps that do this for different types of biodiversity. And, you know, for Amazon app can tell you like what product order, um, so we've made some pretty good strides on that. We have an algorithm that can ID over a thousand snake species with more than 90% accuracy now. So that's probably our next publication that's going to come out of this project. That's in review at the moment. Uh, we'd like to increase both the accuracy and the diversity of species that it covers. But ultimately, what we'd really like to do is integrate the super fast computer vision with the human validation piece, right? I think it's important. A lot of people are inclined to maybe not completely trust a computer's judgment on a critical medical emergency. So getting a human in the loop fast enough, especially one that knows what they're talking about, is a, a kind of a critical piece that we've been working on. I, I honestly put it to your listeners, you know, how, how do you motivate people that know how to ID snakes really well to make themselves available for snake ID in a, in a snake bite situation on a regular basis. That's, that's the part we uh, have. Especially when we're talking about uh, people that have stretched across the, the planet. Yeah. Way, way different time zones and who's going to be up and um, are you, do you take a call at 1am your time or, you know, what, how does that work? How do you, For sure. how do, you do that? We had a, a really good example of this on one of the Facebook groups uh, somebody was bitten by a, a black mamba in Kenya. They were on their way to the hospital. They posted the picture. It was the middle of the night in the United States. Nobody got to ID it correctly for three or four hours. By the time they did, um, I think what happened in that case is the patient actually ended up dying before they reached the hospital. So oh get, my God. yeah, getting the correct ID uh, was didn't end up being relevant in that case, but it could have been relevant if they had survived a little bit longer right. and made it to the hospital. And we did follow up with the physician who ended up, you know, handling the case, and kind of talking to her about what would have been the ideal practice in this situation, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's it's tricky because your expertise is is clustered in the U.S. and Europe and. You want to compensate people to be on call, but uh, it's kind of unpredictable a little bit when you're going to need their expertise. So, and and of course, the experts are really busy with all of their own 
um, research and tasks. So that's the last nut we have to crack, I think, to really deploy this thing. Yeah, it's very it's very complicated. Um, I just just to go off on a little tangent. I um, we talked about the AI identification programs. Um, uh, we uh, the, I would say the Hurt Mapper team. Don, well, I'm, I'm just going to say it's Don Becker, the the developer. Uh, wrote uh, uh, an identification algorithm. We call it Fitch. And Fitch sits out on Twitter. You can uh, post a, a, a picture with the uh, at, what is it, at, what snake is that or whatever. Or I can't it, remember the handle. I think Twitch. it's what, what the herp. Is that? I think yeah, that's what the, the handle, herp. Right? Yeah, that's, that's the handle for Fitch. You post it to at what the herp and post a picture and then Fitch gets back to you in five seconds or 20 seconds, whatever it is, and says, I, you know, it gives you a, a percent pop probability of identification. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he'll say, I'm 98% sure this is a copperhead. Uh, and it, it's, it's, uh, it was an interesting project in, in that, uh, and Don did a great deal of work on that, but, uh, it got, it got really good on North American species. Uh, but then when you try to expand that to global, uh, I mean, North American species are very well represented in with photos. And of course, these AI programs rely on a large bank of photos in order to do their crazy, weird uh, witchcraft, internal witchcraft to develop, um, it, it, you know, artificial intelligence develops its own way of yeah, you know, the, making it. Pattern recognition. Yeah. So you, you've got all these photographs of North American species. That's great. But when you start getting into, like you say, sub-Saharan Africa, there's not just a ton of photos for those species. For sure. And uh, you might find a bunch of them, like people that go over and professionally photo- photograph. Uh, but you also need photographs just taken with a cell phone to help round out the uh, the identification algorithm. You can't just rely on on fantastic studio quality photos. So uh so I can see there is a problem with that too, in terms of getting an AI developed well enough to to identify accurately a mamba from uh, a non venomous snake. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Fitch was a huge inspiration to us in this project. I I showed my new colleagues in Geneva Fitch on day one, and you know they they were very impressed. But but they they and I agree with you that the and that's kind of that was the main message of this paper that that I led and that you, Don and, and, and Chris, the other, uh, hurt mapper admin are co-authors on the Toxicon paper that, you know, all of our information about snake images globally is heavily concentrated in North America and in Europe, which are the places where snake bites, not such a problem. And, and, and we see better performance on North American species in our algorithm too. Although we've, we've tried to reduce those biases, to the extent possible. One way that we do this is is filtering by geography. So when you give the image as an input, you also can tell the algorithm, this is the country that it came from. And then it it weights the species that it knows occurs in that country more heavily. So this seems to help. Yeah. It's not perfect. Um, because of course, our knowledge of which species occur in which countries is not perfect, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So you don't want to ignore a species maybe that occurs in a neighboring country, well, perhaps it does occur in South Sudan or Angola or the Congo, but it's never been documented there because there's been so little scientific work. Right. For very, for political, geopolitical reasons and funding and all that kind of thing. Exactly. And underneath all of this, there's this, this bigger question that, that 
sort of everything hinges off of is there's, there's X amount of venomous snake species in the world across the planet. And there is X number of photographs of all of those species. And you would think by now that we would have photographs of, of all the venomous species, <laughs> but there, that is not true. It that is, is not. another finding. Wasn't it? it wasn't another, of your, of your analysis. Uh, we have snakes. We have no pictures of. Sure. We, so our total number of images was over three quarters of a million images. And we covered 79.9% of all snake species globally. So about 3000, uh, 200 or something like that. I was really trying at the end there to get it over 80%, but it gets, each one gets harder and harder. So that that's, you know, 20% of all snake species globally. We don't have a single color photograph of that species in life. Some of those are really obscure. You know, others are probably more widespread than we realize. And they just occur in areas where most people who live there aren't photographing snakes and posting those images on the web. Right. They're, they're still, they're trying to make a living. Sure. Um, uh, not everybody has the insane amounts of, you know, free time and free capital that, uh, folks in North America and places in Europe have for, oh, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, yeah. And, participation in, in citizen science is definitely yeah. a, a luxury of living in a developed country. There, there are people yeah. that contribute a lot of images on iNaturalist, let's say. And I know you guys have, and we talked about this in our last, uh, hurt mapper call, trying to think about creating Africa specific projects to try and drum up additional participation from areas where we need more data. But of course, you do have to be really sensitive to the situation on the ground. You know, not only is a, does a person have time, do they have access to resources? But um, if they do have a smartphone, is that what they want to spend their limited bandwidth doing? You know, yeah. And I think that is changing rapidly. You know, there is more smartphones in Africa now than ever before, and there's more access to solar panels for charging. And you know, they've skipped straight to to satellite. Uh, internet in many places, which Starlink, yeah, yeah, which is great, you know. So hopefully that's going to improve all kinds of things um, in the developing world, and and hopefully the snake bite situation is one of them. Yeah, I just thought, uh, you know, you make assumptions, and I, I, I'm sure you weren't thinking those numbers would be what those numbers ended up being. You <laughs> just make assumptions. You just assume that, well, somebody's passed through this area and taking pictures of all this stuff, and no. Yeah, I mean, I knew there were at least a, a hundred or so that were described from a single specimen and then never seen again. That was another blog post that I never got to finish was snakes that have only been seen once. <laughs> and um, yeah, there, there's more than you'd think, actually. I mean, there's, there's I think, almost a hundred species. And a couple of those, you know, most of those are sitting somewhere in a museum in a jar with a label that says, you know, who collected it and when and where. Some of them, we don't know, you know, the label's been lost. We don't know when or where it was collected or by who. A couple have even been destroyed. Um, there were a couple in the Butantan Institute in Brazil that had that terrible fire back in 2010. Yeah. And uh, there were also a few in European museum collections in Germany, as well as Italy, and I think a couple in Portugal that were destroyed um, by bombing in World War II. And yeah. so there the only specimen anyone's ever seen of some of those snake species is gone. 
So I, I think we pointed out a couple of those in the discussion of that Toxicon paper, but there's yeah. there's probably more out there languishing that uh, no one knows about. It's mind blowing when you think about the the most obscure and rare snake species, and of course we're still describing new ones every year, right? I think there's been an average of like 30 new snake species described every year since the turn of the century. So that really adds up. Still filling in the blanks. Oh yeah. The, uh, the other thing, this paper, I mean, this, the paper we're talking about, and I'll put a link in the show notes. It's, it's, it's called citizen science and online data opportunities and challenges for snake ecology and action against snake bites. So this is kind of a big overreaching paper about uh like we said not only you know being uh, the issue of identifying venomous snakes but uh actions that can be taken in this so this, this is kind of a a paper where i expect to see more papers associated with this coming from this is that fair is that a, a safe assumption yeah i think so i mean in our group we kind of called this the data paper you know we we had our yeah. uh our whole data set that at some point we wanted to publish and refer to. And of course it's grown since then, you know, largely through the contributions, the very valuable contributions of citizen scientists using HurtMapper and iNaturalist, that those are two, the two largest contributors to these uh, image data sets. Um, I don't know that we'll do an update to this paper for a while because I mean, you could update it every day and it'd be different. Um, Right. But uh, yeah, as I mentioned, we have we have the new and better algorithm um, every year through the LifeClef conference, which is a, a a biodiversity and computer vision conference based in Europe. We do a new round of um, of images, adding new species, and trying to improve the algorithm. And this year, we're adding a more explicit human computer comparison. So soon, we're going to be soliciting for snake experts to participate in another one of these online snake ID challenges where we show you 100 pictures of snakes, you tell us what you think they are, and then, you know, the top identifier gets a prize, and we get to use the data to compare, you know, which images and which species are easiest and most difficult to identify and how do humans stack up against. And you're looking at things like how long it takes the person to identify we did measure that in our first one, um, probably could measure it again. I was really surprised actually to see that I think it was 95% of all of our IDs came in within two minutes. So it's pretty quick when you consider it in the context of, of something like a snake bite. You know, two minutes isn't that much longer than the five seconds it takes Fitch to come to a, a guess. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about this. So is, suppose you, you know, have a network of uh, identification experts uh, and, and I participated in some of those exercises. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It's actually a little, like little, it's game, it's mm -hmm. a game basically. But uh, what about the, I mean, it, it goes from being a game to maybe somebody's life being on the line. So the, as they say, you know, it just got real. Um, what about that? And and it, it, would it be hard to find volunteers who all of a sudden, you know, have a, uh, that's a big weight to carry around. It is. And I think it is really hard because there's, there's a lot of people who are willing to participate when it is just a game or when it is just a Facebook group and you're helping people ID snakes in their yard. You know, I'm sure you've participated in some of these groups where, the comment sections get pretty heated when it's the snake's life that's on the line. You know, 
don't yes. kill it. They're valuable. I've been in those conversations before. Honestly, that's the number one reason that people get banned from these snake ID groups is being too zealous about snake conservation and, and shaming people who have killed a snake and brought it in to ID it. They at least wanted to learn something. Um, so that's been contentious. Right. I honestly... Uh, I don't even want to imagine what that would be like when human lives are on the line. And I, I think you do want to keep it, you, you want to keep it in a platform where you have a good amount of control over who's participating. You want to vet the people, not only their ID skills, but also their, yeah, their, their sort of willingness or desire to engage with a potential life-threatening emergency. And yet you do want to maintain this ability to scale up when you have a lot of need for ID. Um, which is which is hard because you can't do that on a platform like Facebook and maintain the appropriate amount of control. Right. And and Facebook is kind of, you know, um, you, I mean, you can do it on a, a private group or something like that, but it's still it's still a third party platform. Absolutely. Um, At the end of the day, they own all the data. They control what you can yeah. and can't do with it. You know, they right. could shut down the whole thing tomorrow and nobody could do anything about it. I mean, if, if you're not paying for it, right, if it's free, then uh, you're the product. Yep. <laughs> exactly. If you're not paying, you're the product. Yep. So that, you know, it sort of uh, makes me think that, you know, if, if that's going to work, it's probably going to need some, some uh, uh, private development with some uh, non-social media apps that, that uh, help to pull people together and, and coordinate and, send signals out to people or, you know, that might be available to do this or they, you know, kind of, maybe it's kind of like Uber where they, they sign on. <laughs> okay. I'm here. I'm available. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe something like that will, will come of it. Yeah, that's a good idea. And I think that is what my colleagues at, uh, the university of Geneva and, um, the world health organization would, would like to see, you know, we, we have talked some with, with app developers and we've got kind of a very, basic prototype for integrating the different pieces. Um, I think curating that human community and getting people involved who are willing and able to to help on a regular basis for whatever kind of compensation um, can be sustained long term. You know, you don't you don't want to develop this and then after a year, everybody that's participating loses interest and then you don't have a right. viable product anymore. So I, I think we've been a bit slow and and methodical and careful in that aspect because there's kind of only there's a pretty small community of global snake experts and you don't want to you don't want to alienate them by doing it wrong and and rushing it Um, and you don't want to burn through them no no there's before it's time (laughs) absolutely a good number of them are are pretty senior as well um and so that and and maybe that's where the world health organization comes in is is you know providing some some funding to help compensate these people for their time. I certainly hope so. You know, there was a lot of momentum on Snakebite in 2019 at the World Health Organization. I, I myself was um, invited to attend kind of an inaugural uh, event at the WHO in Geneva where they launched a Snakebite roadmap for 2020 to 2030 and had all these goals. And then, you know, of course, COVID started and kind of refocused everybody's attention in public health on um, yeah, on COVID instead. So I... I I'm, I'm hoping that the focus on snakebite can be maintained sort of through that because it was in a really good place beforehand. Um, and it's definitely a good way for somebody like me, a snake biologist, to connect to 
other aspects of, of what we still need to know about snakes to help promote their conservation, right? I mean, the, the human health angle is really important, and it's one of the few ways that herpetology connects to something applied and practical. You know, I talk to my colleagues yes. who work on uh, mammals and birds, and of course, there's game species, and there's lots of funding and interest in managing them. Same thing for fish. A lot of insects would be, you know, pests of crops or something like that. Herps mostly get ignored because there's not that many applications, but snake bites a big one. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's it's um, it was fun to work with you on this project, and even though we're sort of uh, helping in kind of a limited way, but it was fun to participate. But uh, but it, it's uh, looking at this paper, it, you know, it's this overarching. It's not a one-off. It's an overarching. Uh, I almost want to call it a product that. Um, can have more data thrown at it, and other things can come from that, including maybe um, some some solutions for the snake bite problem. So, uh, so congratulations on that. I think it's a, a great uh, step in the right direction. Thank you, and thanks to you and and the rest of Hurt Mapper for your really valuable contributions. I, I want to. Why don't you tell us a little? What are you working on now? You're back in the states and um, back in Florida, and so what? What are you up to now? What's What's on your plate for um, snakes and ecology? Yeah, so I've really been enjoying uh, reigniting the field biology part of my research program. That was difficult to do in Europe. You know, winters are even longer there than Utah, so I was I was relieved to reverse the latitudinal trend and come come all the way south to southern Florida. Well, I think your your European bird count was pretty large there in the winter, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. We we did a lot more birding than herping when we were living in Europe, and it, it's a yeah. honestly, I was really impressed by the herps of Europe. You know, they're not as diverse as those of uh, of North America or any other continent. Well, I guess they're higher than Antarctica, um, but there's some really cool ones. You know, adders and and fire salamanders and grass snakes. Um, fire-bellied toads, lots of, uh, you know, t- interesting tortoises and stuff, chameleons yeah. in Greece. Um, so I, I really enjoyed uh, being there from a wildlife perspective and sort of doing the field biology part more for fun and having my science be exclusively, you know, computer-based. But but now the last two years, I've, I've relished getting back into the field. And so the, the couple of things that I'm working on now... Um, primary thing has been kind of re uh, trying to establish a new long-term data set on aquatic snakes. Of course, there's a lot of aquatic snakes in the Southeast that we know very little about. Black swamp snakes, crayfish snakes, mud snakes, rainbow snakes. These species are, you know, rarely studied because they're rarely encountered. Uh, Fortunately, Southern Florida, we have good populations of mud snakes and striped crayfish snakes. And so I've been targeting some, uh, efforts at trying to detect those and find areas that have robust populations. Success has been limited because one of the big things we've learned is that um, aquatic snake populations have probably been collapsing in Southern Florida for the last 20 years because of invasions of aquarium fishes that have escaped through the pet trade. Uh, These are things like African jewel cichlids, which don't reach a very large size. They're small enough that they can live in really shallow bodies of water, but they're bigger than most of the native fishes that live in those wetlands. And so they, they're pretty aggressive. They're predatory. They eat a lot of the eggs of other fishes, as well as the eggs and larvae of amphibians like frogs, sirens, amphumas. And that um, seems to have kind of undermined the prey base for a lot of these aquatic snakes. 
because I've only been here for two years, I don't have as much before data as I would like because it's, it's difficult to find places that haven't yet been invaded by these fish. Um, right. But that's one of the things that really surprised me about um, the ecology of aquatic snakes in Southern Florida. And then the other one that I've come to understand even more recently, of course, Florida is the land of invasive species. You know, we've got... Uh, yeah. We've got more non-native lizards in my county. I think we've got three or four times as many non-native lizards as native lizards, uh, including at least one lizard species introduced from every continent. Uh, I, I mapped all of the distributions of our non-native lizards, and it pretty much covers the entire tropical part of the world. Um, on top of that, it's yes, it's, it's absolutely insane. You know, chameleons, Nile monitors, black and white tegus, basilisks, green iguana, spiny-tailed iguana, all different kinds of anoles, curly-tailed. I'm really worried about those tegus. They're really spreading north. Yeah, I was I was uh, looking at some of the the reports of tegus from not just Georgia, but the Carolinas, Virginia. There's been a record from West Virginia now. Um, a lot of oh, those boy. are probably escaped pets, but sooner or later, two of them are going to find each other and establish a breeding population yeah. farther to the north. I was with some, some of my friends. We ran into a guy who in, in right uh, down, right on the edge of the the Keys, mm. uh, close to the Keys there in Florida. We ran into a guy who traps tegus. Oh, yeah. Gets, gets paid a bounty for them. And uh, uh, I can't recall the details, but I think he said that last year he had caught over 3,000. Holy crap. <laughs> um, yeah. So those things are everywhere. And he was, the area we were looking for, you know, poking around looking for some king snakes and stuff. And, and he was out uh, checking all of his traps. And he's like, well, there's no king snakes here anymore, boys. Because uh, the tegus have eaten them all. Damn. Um, so they're they're just kind of running everywhere down there. So Yeah, we were camping in the Everglades a few weeks ago and saw a couple tegus and a bunch of tegu traps, both in and outside of the park. So, yeah, un- un- <laughs> unfortunate. But but actually what I was going to tell you about is, is another unfortunate thing. Um, it's a lung parasite that was brought over from Asia, presumably by pythons, and it spilled over into a lot of our native snake species. Um, it has this horrible mouthful of a scientific name called Raleatelia orientalis. It doesn't really have a good common name. People call them pentastomes or lung flukes. Basically, their life cycle is that they reproduce inside the lungs of a snake. The females crawl out of the snake's lung and into its esophagus and lay their eggs into the snake's stomach and then uh, crawl back into the lung. Sounds so uncomfortable. Wow. Snake poops out the eggs. The eggs are eaten by a cockroach or some other kind of invertebrate that likes to eat poop. And then they hatch. The larvae bury into the tissues of the insect. The insect is eaten by a frog or a lizard, and the larvae burrow into the tissues of that frog or lizard. And then eventually the frog or lizard is eaten by a snake, and the larvae mature into adults and move into the lung. So that's their, wow. their life cycle. Yeah, that, that was recently worked out by my colleague Terry Farrell at Stetson University. Uh, nobody knew the life cycle until really a few months ago so that paper didn't this didn't this get into like pygmy rattlesnakes yeah in the Everglades? yeah yeah so terry's documented that uh some of the pygmy rattlesnakes at their sites probably have died as a result of these infections because of course these are python-sized lung flukes so some of the ones that we've dissected are you know 
three inches long. And oh my gosh. we get water snakes on our campus routinely that have 15 to 30 of these in their lungs. Um, so for a small snake, like a pygmy rattlesnake or a southern hognose, that's potentially it's enough to, to kill them. Yeah, um, there, there are native uh, parasites that have a similar life cycle, but they're tiny. You know, they're like a centimeter right. long. So, yeah, unfortunately, these parasites seem to be able to complete their life cycle in completely native communities. So they don't need pythons anymore. They can cycle through native frogs and lizards. Uh the Stetson group was able to infect brown anoles and, uh, well, those aren't native, but they might as well be throughout most of Florida. Right. Um, they were able to infect uh, leopard frogs and, and southern toads and things like that. So, And these have been found as far north as Gainesville, so well to the north of where pythons are currently found. <sighs> so okay. I'm afraid they're probably going to continue to spread north. Now, we don't know exactly what their consequences are going to be. Probably larger snakes may be able to to handle these infections. I've been surprised at how good the body condition of some of the water snakes that we've dissected um, that are infected with these things is, you know, that we dissected one the other day, ton of fat, you know, nice reproductive male reproductive organs are pumping. So it didn't seem to be other than the fact that it had been hit by a car and it had 32 pentastomes in its lung. It seemed to be in excellent health. Okay. But but we need a lot more information about this. So this is another direction that I'm starting to go. You know, I, I didn't choose this. It kind of chose me as we're starting to realize, oh, pretty much all of our snakes are infected with these things. And they've been found in a lot of species of, of conservation concern as well. Eastern diamondbacks, eastern indigo snakes, you know, king snakes, rat snakes, corn snakes, you name it, pretty much. In Asia, they're certainly capable of infecting snakes of all different taxonomic groups, pythons, vipers, cobras, colubrids. So they're probably capable of infect coral snakes and, and all of our right. snake species. So are, have they been studied over where they come from? Not at all. To any degree? Oh, my God. <laughs> very very so little. We have, we, have, we have no baseline for how these how these um how these things operate not really i mean it's the, often the case with non with invasive species that hardly anything is known about them in their native range i mean we weren't even sure whether burmese and indian pythons were one species or two when it was first right. established that they were you know reproducing in the everglades so there's just so much we don't know it can be exciting you know i i choose to yeah. i think living in southern florida you have to accept the non-native species to some extent not all of them are as damaging or harmful as a python or a or a python's lung fluke. Um, for instance, I've been doing a really fun mark recapture study on Brahmini blind snakes in my yard during COVID. I was you know here every single day, and so I started uh, marking. How does one mark a Brahmini blind snake? That was the question. Andrew. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a, a a grad student here, uh, Sam Trost, who's uh, her her thesis has been on population ecology of Brahmini blind snakes, and so she. Uh, and my brother and I got together. My brother did this study on uh, Mediterranean house geckos where he marked them using visible implant elastomer. So that glow in the dark stuff that you mix up oh, yeah. and inject under the skin of fish and small amphibians. That's been used to mark a few other snakes. Nobody ever tried to use it to mark a blind snake before. And so uh, last summer when he came down to visit me, we tried it on a couple of blind snakes. Sam kept them in the lab to make sure that they would survive. And after 10 weeks, they were all doing fine and the marks were still visible. And so I, I started using it to mark the blind snakes in my yard. And I've actually, I think I've marked 25 or so over the last oh my six gosh. months. And I've recaptured five or six of those 
between one and maybe two or three times at intervals of six, eight weeks. So it, it can work, um, apparently. I was, I think it's the first mark recapture study ever of blind snakes. <laughs> this is amazing. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does, how does one, you find a blind snake in your yard? And you say, gee, I wonder how many other blind snakes I have in my yard. And then you say, gee, I wonder what their movements are. Mm-hmm. So it, so you can't turn this off, can you? Not really. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it's a privilege to have a population of snakes in my yard that I can study. Um, e- even a non-native species. I mean, this fascinating species, right? It's the only all-female snake species. They reproduce clonally. Uh you know, we don't really know anything about their population dynamics. How long do they live? How long does it take them to be sexually mature? So that kind of mark recapture study is the first step in trying to answer those basic questions. So far, they seem to have very high fidelity to the logs that I find them under. So most of the ones that I've recaptured have either been under the same log that I first caught them under or maybe the next log adjacent. And these logs are like wow. maybe five feet apart or something. And it's only, they, they're tiny, so they're not, you know, it's not like they're in a sprint to colonize new areas, but uh, they get a big helping hand from us and our, our greenhouse ways, our, our potted plants and Absolutely. things like that. They are shockingly fast when you flip over a log. It's amazing how quickly they bury themselves <laughs> in the soil. So the first several that I flipped, I was not at all prepared and they all escaped. And eventually I, <laughs> I got... I got myself psyched up every time I would flip a log. Okay, if there's a blind snake under here, like I have to grab it instantly or else it's going to get away. So you were flipping and, and maybe looking for the color too. So Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it glows <laughs> under a uh, it glows under an ultraviolet light. So it's oh, okay. difficult it's, to see. Okay. You can see it with the naked eye, but it is it's difficult. Okay. I see. Interesting. I was thinking about all the places I've seen those things. I, I'm I seen them in La Paz down in Baja, California. Um, they show up all over the place. Yeah, it's amazing what dry environments they can live in. I, I mean, I guess our native blind snakes are mostly uh, pretty much exclusively in the deserts of the Southwest. Um, and so they must be able to handle really dry climates. You know, here we have six months of very dry weather and six months of very wet. And that has a strong impact on the seasonality of, of things. Uh you know, you asked what else I've been working on. So I've been uh, collaborating with my colleague here, Matt Metcalf, who's got a long-term radio telemetry study of eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, which has been really interesting to mm. participate in, you know, try to understand a little bit more about their movements, the phenology of their reproduction at what's basically almost the southern end of their range. They do get into the Everglades, which is another, you know, few dozen miles to the south of us. But uh, it's, it's very, you know, they're breeding in the winter. Uh, they're giving birth at very late in the summer, like September, and they don't really hibernate. Um, so they're active year round. They're most right. active in December, January. We find them, you know, Kendall found one crossing a road uh, second week of January, right after we moved here. I was teaching a class and she, she was coming to pick me up and found an Eastern Diamondback crossing the main road of our campus. So that was pretty wow. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, great place to be for wildlife. And let's see, I'm trying to think about what what else to tell you that I've been working on lately. You know, definitely continuing to push the snake ID stuff. Um, I have been uh, getting pretty interested in trying to 
think about ways to add elements to hurt mapper that could make the jobs of snake biologists easier. We talked about this years ago with the idea of adding the effort corrected uh, checklist as an attribute yeah. of the hurt mapper platform. So that's something I'd love to rekindle one of these days. Okay. Uh, yeah. And we've talked about that and uh, I think that's something Don has put a lot of thought into, but we haven't come up with a, a prototype for that yet. Sure. But, uh, and just to explain to the listening audience, it, this is just a way to um, not only track what you find, but how much effort and how much time you spend doing so. So you can, if you're uh, like, I was, I was just doing some wetland surveys with uh, Josh Holbrook last week. And so we spent X number of hours in the ponds, you know, surveying. So whatever time you're spending actually looking for these things and finding them, you can input that. And then you guys uh, 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 can do your special math to figure out what the, the unit of work is or the unit of effort is for that, for that, uh, for that activity. Yeah, it really helps get a handle on, you know, some of the biases that we may not be able to measure that well when we want to use large scale citizen science data. You know, if you have uh, records of herps in HerpMapper or iNaturalist, you may not know if those really represent accurately the amount of energy or time that people spent trying to find them. People may post rare species more frequently, and that may make it appear that they're more common than they actually are, or they may post species that they've never seen before, preferentially. I know a lot of people are, you know, motivated to build their life list. And so sure. if you ignore common species, then to some extent, you underrepresent how common they really are. And that makes the, the overall data set more biased and a little bit less useful. So if you can if you can have that complete checklist of all the species that you saw together with how many people there were and how much time you spent, that really elevates the data from a scientific perspective. And it's not much more work for the person using the app if the people, you know, you guys, Don, on the back end uh, and the advisory board um, have put some thought into how to how to implement it. So, yeah, we don't we don't need to do the actual highfalutin math. Sure. We don't sure. have to we don't need to figure out how much work or effort is, is being put into it. We just need to be able to capture the data that provides that. Absolutely. That, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and it's something in COVID. Of course, is kind of knocked, uh, like many other things. COVID has kind of knocked that whole project back on its on its back heel. So, but uh, I'd like to I'd like to see us move forward with that. Yeah, me too. Because of course, at the same time, I think many more people are contributing to citizen science now yes. because of you know they got into it during the lockdowns when they were stuck at home observing stuff in their yard, and so I I'm sure you know both iNaturalist and HurtMapper have experienced big spikes in uh in contributions during the um yeah they've been they've been pretty good and and um you know it's it's been like birding as as well you know it's we we get some some of the the same uh, increase you know birding just took off during the pandemic just went nuts and and uh you know uh, observing herps also got a boost i think during that time period so and I, that's not likely to go away uh you know uh, one generation's crocodile hunter is another generation's pandemic, you know, <laughs> uh, as far as the kindling interest. So that's a, um, that's a but, good parallel, but I want to, I want to go back and touch on something we, you talked about, uh, the fact that people may be putting in the sexy stuff to iNaturalist and hurt mapper, you know, the really cool things they never seen before. Um, and, uh, we always try to 
tell people that it's in, it's incredibly important to put in the common stuff too. Uh, the toads and turtles in your pond that you see, uh, and every time you go to that place, so, you know, put that stuff in because it's you know the only way we 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 like to refer to keeping common species common, and the way to do that is to make sure we understand what those where those populations are, uh, not only now but in you know in time moving forward. We're, what was that population? Was there a population there in 1958 and 19 and 2008 and 2028? You know, so it's just as important to put common species in, in case you're out there listening and uh, you use iNaturalist or HerpMapper. Absolutely. You're creating a baseline data set for future scientists who uh, may want to assess declines in a species that's common today, but might not be one day. And, and I try to remind myself of that. Anytime I pull over to check out a road killed snake and it's, you know, it's just a black racer or something, I still post it because I want to contribute those data in as unbiased yeah. and, and useful of a way as I can. And sometimes I really surprise myself at how, um, how unique of a record some of these things are. You know, I, I put a Cuban tree frog on uh, iNaturalist a couple of weeks ago that I found when I was road cruising. And it was like, one of the first records of a Cuban tree frog from that part of Florida, which I just assumed that they're all over the place and people are reporting them from all over the place. There's a lot of variation even within the U S in where people participate in citizen science. You know, we were talking about that before yes. in a developing country, you have fewer participants, but maybe in certain rural areas, there's not that many people who have heard about it yet. Um, and so it's, it's good to kind of spread the word. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we've reaped some of the benefits of that with HerpMapper, and of course, iNaturalist has as well. And uh, well, I just want to point out too, if you're using iNaturalist and you're not using HerpMapper, you can import your iNaturalist records, as far as Herps go, you can import them into HerpMapper and double your effort, mm. double your conservation and uh, science effort. So I didn't realize that was that was implemented. That's a that's a good way to. <laughs> Yeah, get converts. I I recommend HerpMapper to all of my students because I want to make sure that they are posting their herp observations uh, in a place where if they document a rare species, that it's going to be protected. You know, and I, I tend to use iNaturalist yeah. more for for plants and inverts, and you know I'll put common herps on there sometimes. Um, but yeah. Herp mapper for the herps, eBird for the birds, and then uh, iNat for for everything else. For everything else, yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm not, you know, I have a a, a bias for herp mapper. I'm not against you people using iNaturalist uh, at all. Um, I think they should be. It's great that people do want to do something, uh, whatever it is, eBird, uh, any of those, any of those tools. I think that's it's great to do that. Sure, so. if you're gonna. It's much better to put them in any one of them than none of them. <laughs> I fully agree with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, so I, I also want to touch base, and then we're we're kind of getting towards the end here. But I want to touch base on um, something a little different, and we, we, you referred to it a little bit, and that is a blog that you wrote for a number of years called "Life is Short, But Snakes Are Long," which is a, a famous quote. I think from David Quammen. That's right. It was, uh, he, he actually told me by Twitter that his ex-wife came up with that and he used it in a book review of Harry Green's 
Snakes, The Evolution of Mystery and Nature, which is one of the best books that's ever been published on snakes. It is. Get it, folks. Absolutely. So I, I, I cribbed that from the back of, of Green's book and used it as the title of my blog, which I started in 2012, not thinking at all that it would take off the way that it did. You know, 2012 was a good time for blogs and, and the internet. You know, Twitter was just starting. Uh, I was in the field in Florida, actually, and we were experiencing some of the forced downtime that is so common when you're out there looking for herps and it's raining or it's too cold or it's too hot. My friend Aaron Reedy had a blog about science education for his high school students back in Chicago. And he said, oh, you know, Dursa, you, sh- you should start a blog about snakes. I said, oh, okay, that sounds like something I could do. So I wrote up a little post about a snake shed that we had found earlier that day and how I'd identified it um, and posted it. And it, it kind of took off. And in fact, it's it's really funny, you know, right before we started talking, <laughs> I got an email from a person in Ohio asking me to help them identify a bunch of, bunch of snakeskins that they found in their house. So that ah. that first post really hit on uh, an unfilled niche in the, in the internet ecosystem that I had no idea was out there. <laughs> it's still, still perpetuating to this day, even though, you know, I, I haven't, unfortunately, I haven't really had time to write as much since about the middle to end of 2017. I think I made a couple of posts in 2018, but that was around the time that I started working for Geneva. And I told myself, told myself that year that if I didn't get a postdoc, that I was going to really invest some energy in turning that blog into a book. Oh, something I've always wanted to do is write a book. And a few months later, I got that postdoc. And so then, you know, I was there in Geneva for about a year and a half and was applying to faculty jobs. And again, I told myself, well, my chances of getting a assistant professorship probably aren't that good. So if I don't get one and this postdoc ends, then I'm going to I'm going to go back to the blog. I'm going to turn it into a book. And I got this job that I have now. So uh, they're just, you know, there, there hasn't been as much time as there was when I was a graduate student. Uh, Actually, funny, uh, funny tale about that. I, I think my advisor knows about this now, but she didn't at the time. Um, when I was getting ready to defend my dissertation, you know, I, I have this citation manager software called EndNote, where you can have folders for your different literature references. And my folder for my dissertation has about 300 references in it. But my folder for the blog has over 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's something I should mention here. It's um, you, life is short, but snakes are long. You go to the blog page. Um, for example, if the the latest one is called Venom and, Venom Resistance in King Snakes, and it's an article all about that. Um, but the list of references you don't you don't just uh, write. You also put really cool pictures uh, that accompany the text and make sense, and not just pictures of snakes. You have some interesting. Uh, it may be historical representations of animals and things like that. It's all, you're all over the, all over the place with it. And it's great. And at the end of the blog post is all the references. And there's, uh, this particular one has about a foot. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm just looking at it. it. That is really a ton of references for a blog post. So, so it's this nice little package and it's a way for people to get more information 
uh, it's very, you know, they're very well done. And uh, what, is, what is the next? The next one is the the house snake mess for dummies. Oh, geez. Which yeah. Is, uh, the <laughs> African house snake um, uh, species complex, if you want to call it that. Yeah, that was another one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, that was a labor of love, I'm sure. But uh, there's there's people who appreciate that. Um, next one is basics of snake skulls, where you start, you uh, use uh, some diagrams and talk about all the different pieces and parts of snake skulls and why they're important and all the little bones and how everything fits together. And it's really cool. It's got some really great imagery in it. So this just goes on and on and on and all these great topics. I really enjoyed going through this, these and reading all of them. I think I have read all of them. Although it's been a while, I have to go back and read some, read these over again, but uh, it's a great blog. Uh, I, w- I wish you were still doing it, but I understand why you're not because you, you have lots of other things on your plate, but uh, th- this is an art form that I think kind of gets ignored a little bit. It's, it's, it's good to see people still doing this to some extent. I do it to some extent a little bit. Uh, and there's a few other people out here who do it, but it's, it's in our current era, this, these things are, well, they're hard to do, but people just don't have a lot of time to invest in, in reading. This used to be like the meat and potatoes of, of the herp world or, you know, things like this, but it's, our lives are much different and how we process information has kind of changed since then. Yeah, perhaps people would rather listen to a podcast or they'd rather see a short blurb posted on, you know, their their social media outlet of choice. One of the things that I always tried to do with Life is Short But Snakes Are Long is try to provide um, information that wasn't available elsewhere. You know, so I, I, would, yeah. I would try not to write about whatever snake topic was hot that week in the mainstream news. You know, if I saw something covered in National Geographic or the New York Times, I knew that I probably wasn't going to do a, a much better job of talking about it than they had. And so I, I tried to seek yeah. out things like uh, the taxonomic mess that is African house snakes to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, partly for my own edification, right? Because I wanted to learn about these things. And I found myself researching them out of interest. And I thought, well, I should, I should put some of this stuff together uh, in a in a tidy package so that it's all in one place for other people that are interested. Part of the reason that I stopped writing it is that, you know, I eventually ran out of topics that I already knew something about. (laughs) And and I have a list of, of, you know, I probably have 50 partly written or half finished posts where I, I started researching a topic and I found that it was more complicated and interesting than I ever imagined. I have a bunch of the literature together and I just didn't really have time to read it all, synthesize it and put it into a, a format. I'd love to return to it someday. Uh, you know, some of these things are probably better as peer reviewed articles actually, because they're so extensive, but then of course people don't necessarily access or read those things in the same way. So, well, perhaps a book is a good way, a good thing for the future too. I'd love to do that. And frankly, when I, uh, hopefully in another four or five years here, when I can take my first sabbatical, that's what I'd like to do is, is work on a book. Uh, hopefully life is short, but snakes are long. Yeah, that'd be great. You'll get rich. I'll tell you right now. Well, yeah, we'll see if people are still (laughs) buying books in five years. (laughs) Uh, yeah, actually people still buy books. Uh, I buy a lot. Yeah, me too. The whole print is dead thing. I'm sorry, Egon, you were wrong. Um, but I know how much work you put into these things. I, I understand not just because you have a bunch of references, but synthesizing what it what you've gathered and what you're trying to say is is a lot of work. I, I did a blog post a number of years ago about 
why the queen snake is called a queen snake. Hmm. And so I spent months trying to figure out why Baird and Gerard back in 1858 or 1852, I can't remember why they referred to, why, why did they come up with the genus uh, Regina, you know, which is the queen, queen snakes and grams of crayfish snakes. Why Regina? And there's, they're not talking, you know, um, <laughs> it'll take a seance to find out what, what, uh, what these guys were, were doing. But, uh, you know, and at the end of it all, I, c- I came up with some interesting data, but I could never come up with an, a- a- where anybody said, the reason we picked Regina is, you know, they, they weren't big on etymology back then. No, they were very light on the details. Of course, space yeah. in print was at such a premium at that time that uh, there probably were a lot of things that were left unwritten because they were said or because they just assumed everyone would know. And now those details have perhaps been lost to yeah. history. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a great one. And and uh, I think there's, there's a ton of topics like that that are really worthy of investigation, super interesting. Uh, I actually encountered an interesting one uh, when I was doing a, an outreach program online is this program called Skype a scientist where you sign yes. up, you sign up to uh, talk to classrooms around the world about your science. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I, I love doing those. And, and I was, so I was living in Germany at the time. I think I was Skyping with a fourth grade classroom somewhere in the U S and one of the kids asked, what's the fastest snake? And I told him it's a black mama because every snake person knows it's a black mama. But then afterwards, I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, I've never actually seen any data on the speed of black mambas. I wonder if anyone has ever actually measured the speed of a black mamba. And so I started researching, you know, how do we know that black mambas are the fastest snake? And there's tons of there's tons of snake books and articles that say this. A lot of them cite each other. Uh, some of them cite like the Guinness Book of World Records, you know? Oh, no. <laughs> um, and they kind of, if you really follow it, it kind of just goes around in circles. Um, but it, it it seems to appear roughly in the mid to late 1960s. Whoops, sorry about that. You might have to, I'll, I'll say that again since my... My computer made nope, noise. No, I, I think we heard it. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So it seems to appear somewhere in the mid to late 1960s. And um, I wrote to a, a variety of people that know things about the snakes of Africa. You know, people like uh, Brian Merritt and um, Johan Marias, Graham Alexander, Harry Green. You know, what have you guys ever seen any data whatsoever on the speed of black mambas? They all said, no, I doubt anybody's ever measured it. You know, it's a big, dangerous snake, really difficult to measure that kind of thing. So where did this idea come from that they're, they're the fastest? And eventually I did find in a book by Don Broadley from the early 60s, uh, his species account on the black mamba says, I wouldn't be surprised if black mambas are among the fastest of all snakes. And there it starts, and, folks. And I right think there. that's, yeah, I think that's probably the origin of the idea. And I'm not saying they're not the fastest. Uh, they are big, right? So it could just be that they are the biggest fast snakes, uh, long and slender ones. But there there could be faster snakes out there. And I, I kind of... Could be a taipan. Yeah, could be a coach whip, could be, you know, a variety of things. So I, I kind of tried to compile 
some some speeds of snakes that had been measured and a couple of people like Kimberly Andrews measured the road crossing speed of various snakes as part of her dissertation so um looked at those data and then started talking to uh, a friend uh, Norm Barrett who lives in Zambia and is part of a snake relocation network there I said you know can you start measuring this escape speeds of these like Sam Ophis and stuff when you're letting them go. And, and if you ever get a black mamba, maybe you could try to measure clock at speed also, you know, measure two points on the ground and then use a stopwatch. And so if you, if you have one of those measured rulers that are measured off black, white, black, white, and centimeters, just throw it out on the ground and shoot a video, right? That's and a good you idea. Can calculate it from there. Yeah, that's a good idea. I should, I should buy some of those and, and ship them to norm and just, eventually, you know, hopefully he'll, he'll be in a situation where it's actually possible, you know, he or one of the people in his network to, to actually make that measurement. I, th- I think that would be really cool to demonstrate. This is how fast they can actually travel. Of course, you got a whole nother aspect of, well, how do you know they're going as fast as they can go? Right. You, uh-huh. you really won't know yes. that. I don't think. And what are the circumstances where they move at maximum velocity sure it's very hard to know their motivation because of course much as i try to put myself in the mind of a snake i am not a snake i will never be a snake sounds like a monty python question what is the maximum (laughs) velocity of an unladen (laughs) african mamba yeah really (laughs) oh gosh that's pretty funny well, I like the way your brain works. You're always thinking about these things. And uh, thinking about these things leads to data collection, which leads to more blog posts and, and scientific papers and things like that. Absolutely. That's that's the job of a scientist. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever have you ever flipped a log in your yard and picked up the little Bromity blind snake? Have you ever thought about that thing and compared it to a Burmese python? And you think, and I, cause I do this, I, I think, and I would think, how can these be the same organism? How, they're, they're both snakes. They're both serpents. How can that be? This thing is, you know, this, this tiny thing. And then the, the Burmese is, is, is in, in terms of scale, sure. size. Yeah. These blind snakes. I mean, if you've never seen one in person and I never had before I moved to Florida, they're about the same size as the lung parasites that infect the pythons. You know, oh they're like a couple of centimeters long and so slender. I find that I can only believe it when I look at the blind snakes through a hand lens and I see their tiny little forked tongues flicking out magnified at a scale that makes more sense to my brain. When I do that, I can accept that they are indeed snakes and that they have all the same parts that other snakes yeah. do a brain, a skull, you know, jaws, uh, heart, lungs. Uh, you can say, I just caught one earlier today where I think they're starting to uh, reproduce now because the rainy season's beginning. And so I could see her four eggs lined up there in her oviduct, which was very cool. The first time I've had the chance to see that in person. Wow. Um, yeah. At the, I think at the end of the Toxicon paper, when we, when we, uh, did our roundup of, you know, here's the last round of edits. I sent out two images of the two snakes I had seen most recently, which was a Bramini blind snake in my yard and an Eastern diamondback on our campus. And Conrad Meber, yeah. who's one of the co-authors wrote back and he said, Oh, the, the, the meek and timid rattlesnake that, you know, is very noble and magnanimous and hurts no one that doesn't, uh, piss him off first in contrast to the, <laughs> the the menacing and dangerous 
blind snake, you know, the Brahmini blind snake that has invaded more countries than any other snake. And, you know, I just thought that was such a funny juxtaposition of these two, two different things. So he's, he's riffing on the same, same thing. Oh yeah. 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 Conrad's got a great sense of humor for stuff like that. If you ever, have you ever met him? I I know of him, but I have not met him. Great, great guy. I have not met him. He'd Uh, be a good guest for, for so much Pingle someday. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to write it down right now. Um, that's a good idea. Um, well, it, so um, I'm, I'm going to let you go here. But um, again, it's just blind snakes in your yard leads to other things. And maybe it's the blind snake that's the fastest snake. I mean, Ooh. there were some you couldn't catch. So That's true. I, I mean, mean, for and, their size, you, you do have to you do have and to You'd have to scale down the, the distance covered, but it's possible. Never know. <laughs> Always have to keep an open mind. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like you do. So, uh, it's uh, well. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's great to talk to you, and uh, like like the way your brain works. Always have, um, and uh, you always got some exciting thing going on. And so I appreciate that. And uh, good luck to you with your future projects. And hopefully, you'll come up with some more um, some more blog posts and uh, more work on the snake ID stuff. So, sounds like you're a really busy guy. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I, I try to stay busy. You know, it's uh, it, it's funny. You said you think you've you've read all the snakes or long posts, and I I do hear from people occasionally who ask why I'm not writing it anymore. Although a lot of those people sort of sheepishly admit that they haven't actually read all of the ones that are up there yet, because th- there are a good number. I think there's at least like uh, probably at least sixty or seventy, um, and some of them are really long. I think there was one that I posted on my birthday one year that was just way too long and uh i told myself you know what it's my birthday i I can what's the internet for if not long form publishing that would never make it anywhere else so yeah thanks so much for having me and thanks to you know anybody out there that's listening to the podcast that's that's read my blog or or seen my other scientific work at any point uh you know reach out if you're interested in chatting about whatever collaboration or field trip Uh, i'm always game for making a new connection sounds good i will post some links in the show notes for that and as well and uh and i'll, I'll talk to don about uh we need to get this uh effort thing effort tracking thing back on track for her mapper too so cool all right well once again andrew thanks so much appreciate it thanks appreciate your me. time That's it for episode 65. Thank you to Andrew Durso for coming on the show. It was a great pleasure to chat with you again, and I wish you all the best with your projects, and uh, I really hope you find time to write that book because I want a copy. And thanks once more to all of the So Much Pingle patrons who have gotten the show all the way to the third season. Much appreciated, and if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, and so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to somuchpingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.